Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit upon us as we study the beautiful insights of Pope Benedict XVI. We give glory to you. We thank you for the gift of his life, the gift of his insights uh, for us as he leads us through the apostolic faith, through the scriptures, to an encounter with you, that we might discover the one for whom our life was made, that in all things we might glorify your holy name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Dr. Stout, I turn it over to you for the evening. Thank you, Father. Pope Benedict, of course, was a great reader of the Church Fathers. But like the Church Fathers, he's bringing us back to the source, uh, to Jesus, who is the main teacher. Um, and that's what you really see coming out in every single chapter that we've read so far. Every chapter has the same message. It's about Jesus bringing us to the Father. That's who Jesus is, the one who leads us to the Father. That is what he does. Everything that we see in this book so far is leading us to that central point. So one of the things that we see consistently is that even when Jesus is teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, that was our main reading for today, it's not teaching about God. It is actually leading us into the life of the Father. Because Jesus is not a teacher like me, you know, studying a book and learning knowledge and saying, hey, everybody, you know, you need to, to learn about this thing over here. I'm going to teach you about something that I learned. Pope Benedict keeps coming back to the point that Jesus doesn't have to learn about God in, in that way. He doesn't have to have the Father to be revealed to him. He is the Son of the Father. He is the one the Father eternally speaks forth as his word. And that speaking extends into creation. It's really drawing us into the conversation, right? He, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are having this conversation from eternity. And we've chosen to step out of that conversation through sin. And so Jesus is coming down, right? You, you see Pope Benedict speaking about this, about going up and coming down. But Jesus empties himself. He comes down to us to say, hey, I know that even words are hard for you people. You're so caught up in material things that I will become flesh to reveal the Father to you 
in a way that you can understand. He is the face of the Father revealed to us. And you know what's interesting when we look at the third chapter on preaching, and Pope Benedict considers, you know, what what is the kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about? Right? Is it him? Is is he the kingdom? Or, you know, Jesus says the kingdom is within you. So does that mean that the kingdom is just, you know, spiritual inside of our souls and that's it? You know, just the presence of God in us? Or is the church manifest in the world in the church? Like the kingdom of God is, is just the church. And Pope Benedict, you know, you, you might think he, he'd pick one or he might say all of them, but he actually refines it. This is on page 60. He says that, yes, we can see the kingdom in the person of Jesus, but there's a nuance here. He says, and so this is the quote from Luke's gospel about in the middle of the page on page 60. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here, as in the preceding text for that matter, it is not simply in Jesus's physical presence that the kingdom is located. Rather, it is in his action accomplished in the Holy Spirit. In this sense, it is in and through him that the kingdom of God becomes present here and now that is is drawing near. So is the kingdom the person of Jesus? Yes, but the person of Jesus acting in the Holy Spirit, acting in you right now, in you, acting in the church in the world right now, so it's in a way it is all of them, but but there is this nuance here that the kingdom of God is in Jesus acting because it's an active lordship of the Father over creation. So the kingdom, when we hear the word kingdom, right? What, what do you think of? Maybe it's a castle, they have a moat and a drawbridge. And so the kingdom of God is there. Maybe I'll just go, I can go on a journey, or or maybe they'll let the drawbridge down and I can go inside of that place. But it's not a place like that. And it's, as he says, not even simply a person. Right? If the kingdom of God was just the physical presence of Jesus, then it would he would be like that castle. <laughs> but in a way, we're the castle. We have to let down the drawbridge so that the king can enter. And that is what makes the kingdom of God present to us. That's what makes it near at hand. Because the Messiah, the anointed one, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he's acting in us, making the kingdom present within us and in the world through his church. So this is the brilliance of Benedict, right? Because here he can look to the church fathers. They're the ones who propose some of these solutions, right? And so he can look at various solutions proposed throughout history. But he's reading the scripture very deeply, and he says, look at this nuance here that we see in Luke's gospel. The finger of God is acting through Jesus, and that is the kingdom. He even said that really the word kingdom could be translated as the lordship, the active reigning of God. Right? So it's not the kingdom of God, it's the reigning of God. Reigning in you, reigning in the world through his church. 
it's a powerful way uh, to understand the difference that Jesus brings. Every religion throughout history is trying to help us to understand the great mystery of human life and to fix human problems like suffering. That, that was what Buddha talked about, right? How, how do we solve the solution of suffering? And Jesus didn't just give us information about, you know, secret knowledge about God and about heaven. He didn't just come to fix our problems. He came to make God actively present among us. It is a recreation of humanity from within. It is a great rescue mission in his teaching and his ministry is all about bringing us into the life of the Father. That is who Jesus is. So I want to just give a, a brief recap of the chapters that we read about last week. We talked about them a little bit and actually hit on some of the key points. But just a brief recap to look at how they set up the chapter that we read for today. Now, we had a foreword, an introduction, and three chapters last week. And then today we had one chapter. <laughs> it was a very long chapter, but let's look at how all this fits together, right? So the foreword talked about how to read the Bible through this hermeneutic of faith. The introduction talked about the centrality of Jesus. And then in chapter one, we get into the baptism. And the key point in this chapter that even comes back to in chapter two is that the baptism expresses this descent that I was talking about, that Jesus submits to the act of baptism, which is an act of repentance, even though he has no sin, even though he has the communion of the Father, right, that he's bringing to us, yet he embraces our sinful state through his baptism to express the solidarity with us. I will come down to where you are, right? He's not embracing our, our sinful state by sin, right? But it's by uh, joining himself to us in our fallenness. Um, Benedict says, so that there can be this, this great divine exchange, that he descends to us so that he can raise us back up. And that is the, the going down, the down into the water is the descent into the depth of darkness, the darkness of this world, into the depths of death itself, so that he could draw us back up out of this darkness and out of this death with him. And it's interesting that in that very moment when he empties himself, this is when Benedict speaks about this investiture um, in the office of the Messiah. Because so that's what's happening. The word Messiah means Christ, which means the anointed one. So that's three languages. Mashiach, right, is, is the Hebrew, and then Christus, the Greek, and then anointed is the English, right? It's the same word, anointed. And he's anointed not with oil, like the kings and prophets of the Old Testament, but with the Holy Spirit. Uh, once again, because even though, I mean, he himself is perfectly united to the Holy Spirit, but his humanity becomes the instrument for spreading the kingdom of God the finger of God, right? This, this action through the Holy Spirit into the world. And so from his fullness, we all have received, Paul says, this fullness of what the Holy Spirit and God's grace within his humanity itself. So this is a manifestation of the office of the Messiah. 
which is elevated as we see in the next chapter. So the first thing that Jesus does as the Messiah is to do battle. Well, and that, that's what Israel expected, right? You know, that the Messiah is going to come. Well, he'll mop up the Romans for us, right? Well, not exactly, but that does happen eventually, by the way, right? I mean, Christ does conquer the Roman Empire. It just took 300 years. Um, so actually, that does happen, but that's that's not what he's about, right? He He's not raising a material army um, of soldiers who are fighting with weapons, right? I mean, he, he is, in a way, uh, constituting uh, an army, right, of his disciples, but who are entering into the kind of battle which he undertakes in the temptations in the desert. And Benedict says that this is even a recapitulation. What does that mean? The couplet's the head. So it's this kind of reconstituting this going through the entire history of humanity. Because what happens at the very beginning is that humanity is, is given this gift of the fullness of life. You could say given the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we see in the baptism. Adam is constituted the head of humanity, the king just as Jesus is instituted in this office of king as, as Messiah at his baptism. And then the serpent comes to test the vocation, and Adam fails that test. Now we see in the wilderness, in a way, this is coming out into this new garden because we, we have wild beasts, but we have the, the ministry of angels. Uh, so this does hearken to the garden itself, but it also hearkens to the testing that Israel had to endure in the desert, where they put God to the test, right? God performs all these great miracles for them. He, he redeems them from slavery in Egypt. He takes them through the water. Oh, the water, there it is again, right? Jesus' baptism, in a way, is a parting of the water, as we see at the Red Sea, and Israel is constituted to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. And then they are to come into the promised land. But instead, they put God to the test. They fail, once again, um, to live out the vocation that they were given. And what do they cry for? They cry for bread. Right? And, and they have to endure tests also even about kingship, right? That they have other nations which come against them, and they're defeated in battle when they are unfaithful. Right? And it's in fidelity um, that they are able to achieve victory and come into uh, the promised land. But we see that that key temptation, and, and if it were up to me, I would have put this one at, at the pinnacle. Be Benedict you know, looks at the temptations in the order of bread, putting God to the test, and political kingdoms. But putting God to the test is actually the worst, right, of the three, because you have material needs, and then you have political power, but then you have a challenge against God himself. And that's ultimately how Israel fails. They do not trust God. They do not allow themselves to be fed by him and to be constituted as a kingdom by him in the way that he seeks to guide them. And that's why they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, the 40 days are also evocative of Moses going up Mount Sinai for 40 days. Um, and we have Elijah coming back 
to Mount Horeb, which is also, it's another name for Mount Sinai. And this is where he hears that still voice, right, in the gentle breeze of God speaking. So there's a lot going on here, right? You know, uh, we have Adam, we have um, Moses, we have Israel in the desert, we have Elijah, um, we have, four, of course, even 40 days with Noah, right, where there's this remaking of creation um, in the flood, which is another thing that we see related to Jesus' baptism and this remaking of humanity in the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at these three tests, Pope Benedict says, ultimately, they're all about God. All of them are a temptation to push God aside and to focus on material needs or, or other needs before him. And so on page 29, this is really where we see Benedict as the prophet even speaking to us today. Uh, Benedict at once, as I mentioned last week, is able to look to the past to retrieve the tradition, but then to speak to our needs in a prophetic way today. And this is what we see happening here. He's unpacking the reality of the temptations, but in a way that's extremely relevant at the, at the top of 29. God is the issue. Is he real? Reality itself? Or isn't he? Is he good? Or do we have to invest the good ourselves? The God question is the fundamental question. And it sets us down right at the crossroads of human existence. And so it's a perennial question. It's not like he's only talking to people today. And yet today in our secular world, the God question is more of a question than it ever has been. Can we simply do without God? That's what we think, right? We are putting that to the test. And in a way, you know, it's not that God is completely outside of our consciousness, but we do speak often, like Benedict brings up here, um, asking God to prove it. If you are real, God, then do this. If you are real, do that or, or, or show me. I want you to show me so clearly that I couldn't deny it. Benedict brings up that point often. What does that mean? Don't expect me to have faith in you. Don't expect me to trust you. I want you to prove it to me. Well, what happens here? That's a subordination of God to me. And that's often what we do, right? We, we want God to fulfill our desires. We want God to prove himself to us in a way that we can understand that makes sense to us within our constraints today. And that's not how it works, right? And so this is what Israel was meant to do in the desert, was to learn to be obedient, to learn to trust, to, to be a son. And we see this even in Hosea. God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Israel was meant to be son. Jesus comes as son, right? To show us what it means to be a son of God. Why? So that we can do it. I was actually reading the, the beginning of John's gospel with my kids today. And so what does it say at the beginning? All right, some themes that we talked about, right? That Jesus is the word, that he brings light into the darkness. But why did Jesus come? What does it say at the very beginning of John's gospel? So that we could be born, not of flesh, not of blood, not of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
so that we could be reborn, so that we could be sons in the son, that he could teach us how to relate to the father as he does. And I would say something else that's kind of like a pet peeve of Pope Benedict comes out in this chapter, and and you see it coming out in the Sermon on the Mount chapter as well, that people today want to realize the kingdom of God as an earthly kingdom. And one of the first things that Pope Benedict did when he came to work at the Vatican for Pope John Paul II was to write against liberation theology, right? And liberation theology was an attempt to make the kingdom of God imminent, that the kingdom is meant to bring social justice to the world right now. It's meant to feed the poor now and overcome all injustices now. And Benedict always said that this is a cheapening of the kingdom because the justice that God brings, the righteousness that God brings to connect it to the Sermon on the Mount chapter is deeper than what can be realized in a political or economic sense. Right? Liberation theology was an embrace of Marxism, right? to say that the perfection of human life ultimately is an economic and political reality. Well, God didn't make us for economics and politics. He created us for sonship. And this is what Jesus must teach us. And so we come to this third chapter then on the preaching of the kingdom. And John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But this is where Benedict made it clear that This is not just about content. He says the preaching of the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news is performative. And and you see that term coming out in numerous places in, in his teaching. Space salve, the encyclical, is the most significant one. That the teaching of Jesus is meant to be not in just informative, but performative. It's meant to change us. It's meant to bring us to conversion. Because that's ultimately what the kingdom of God is, right? This turning towards the Father. And so what is the content? It is him, right? And and it is received by being a disciple. And in the chapter we read today, Benedict says that you can't receive the teaching of Jesus without the conversion that we go through by becoming a disciple, He who has ears, let him hear. Well, how do you have ears? It is through this turning to the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That's a metanoia is the Greek word for repent. And it's a a change of your mind. Um, And it can be understood, nous, the noia, can be understood even more deeply than mine as soul. Changing your soul, turning your soul from what? From this world to the kingdom of God. Because the Beatitudes, to kind of jump ahead, to to breach these two chapters, chapters three and four, the Beatitudes are changing the way that we think about the world. They're turning things upside down, and by that we mean right side up, right? (laughs) They're, They're helping us to understand what we really should value. Um, as we see, and in, in even the temptations or in the Beatitudes, are we seeking physical food? Are we seeking material possessions? Are we seeking perfect justice and peace in this world? Or are we seeking them in a deeper sense that 
even if you are hungry, can you be fed? Even if you're experiencing injustice, can you possess the justice of God, the righteousness of God? And that's not meant to, to be confined simply to here. And that's why the kingdom of God is not simply confined within the soul. And this is that tension that which I, I want to unpack, and I, and I want to really get into more of a discussion this week, right? Because this is a book study, right? It's not just a class. And so if it was a class, right, it would just be me teaching content. But what I'm trying to do here is, is to help you to read this book, right? <laughs> so we're unpacking this book, but we're reading it together. And one of the things that I want to discuss is Benedict points to attention in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, unlike liberation theology, is not a blueprint for, you know, a renewed society, right? You just follow the Sermon on the Mount, and then we can fix all the problems we have in the world, and we'll, we'll live in perfect peace and harmony. Well, we can live in perfect peace and harmony, but it's not going to be because of a political or economic system. It's going to be the kingdom of God that can pervade those things, but it doesn't abide primarily within them. There are people who thought that. I mean, kind of recently, one example is Leo Tolstoy, where he said the Sermon on the Mount must be realized perfectly in this world. And he went and started his own little church out in the plains of Russia, you know, in the steppes. So there are people who, who thought that, right? But okay, so it's Jesus was not coming to establish a political kind of regime to fix the, the problems that we have on earth in and of themselves. But if he was coming to fix us, to draw us into this sonship, which he has perfectly, that should change the way that we live in the world. And if we really are following Jesus as his disciple, and the word disciple means student, by the way, so if we're, if we're really his student, we're learning from him how to live, well, that should change everything. Politics should be different. Economics should be different. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that me as a Christian, that I can just go and change these systems, right? But all of my actions, they do have political significance because I live in the world and they, and they have economic significance and social significance. And what did Jesus say? That the gospel is leaven. Maybe that's a better way of thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a kind of castle to be placed in the world and defended, but it's leaven. What does leaven do? It gets into everything and it, and it, and it makes it grow, changes it from the inside. Maybe on the outside, it won't even look that different, but you'll notice it. You, you will notice this a, a difference over time, bit by bit, starts to rise and to be transformed from the inside. So one last point from chapter three, before we just move on more squarely now to chapter four is, and this is, a, once again, a, a kind of a bridge point here as well. He talks about ethics at the end of chapter three, that the way that we think about ethics and morality is about doing things or not doing things. But Jesus changes the way that we should think about doing things and not doing things. It's, it's not simply a set of rules. It's not simply me putting forth my best efforts to imitate Jesus, right? What would Jesus do? Well, okay, well, that presupposes that Jesus is over there, and I'm down here, 
And I'm just doing my darndest to try to be like him and to imitate him. But that's not enough, right? That's not actually Christian ethics. Christian ethics is about receiving God into our lives, being transformed in our very being. Jesus comes once again to recreate us, to be born again, not of flesh, not of the will of man. That is not simply by our own free choice, our own efforts, but of God. And so morality now is not simply me trying to follow a bunch of commandments. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Pope Benedict quotes that in chapter 4 from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so let's turn to chapter 4. I, I want to read something from page 90, which really is the epitome of everything that Pope Benedict's been saying in this book so far. He's almost a broken record, but but why? Because this is everything. Our whole understanding of Christianity, of the Catholic Church, of our own life uh, as disciples, it all depends on this point. And so he's hammering it home. Let's just start reading at the top of page 90. The Beatitude concerning the persecuted, so at the, the end of the Beatitudes, contains in the words that conclude... I'm sorry, in the words that conclude the whole passage, a variant indicating something new. Jesus promises joy, exaltation, and a great reward to those who for his sake are reviled and persecuted and have all manner of evil uttered falsely against them. Right? Oh, oh, joy, right? <laughs> well, um, when these things happen to me, but, but why should we rejoice when those things happen? goes back to that line from St. Paul, because now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this is how Pope Benedict continues, and here's the key point. The I of Jesus himself, fidelity to his person, becomes the criterion of righteousness and salvation. In the other Beatitudes, Christology is present, so to speak, in veiled form that they all speak about Jesus. They're a kind of biography of Jesus, Pope Benedict says in Matthew's gospel. But in Luke's gospel, they're more of a portrait of the disciples, but we should see those two together. Here, however, the message that he himself is the center of history emerges openly. Jesus ascribes to his I a normative status that no teacher of Israel, indeed, no teacher of the church, has a right to claim for himself. Someone who speaks like this is no longer a prophet in the traditional sense, an ambassador and trustee of another. He himself is the reference point of the righteous life, its goal and center. Uh, and this is where we see, you know, this whole dialogue with Rabbi Neusner coming out here, um, that you know, that was kind of a, a long extended commentary to basically make this same point. He says, okay, uh, you know, all these modern scholars are trying to figure out who Jesus is and what his teaching really consists in and how it's different from the Old Testament. But let's just listen to a modern day rabbi who really knew the rabbinical tradition of Jesus' time and the centuries that followed. And let's see, he's trying to place himself into the scene almost in Ignatian fashion, right? <laughs> Imagining how he would respond 
to the words of Jesus. And the rabbi says that the problem is not the teaching of Jesus. A, a lot of the, the kinds of things that Jesus says, I mean, other rabbis said a lot of stuff like that. So it's, it's okay teaching, right? It's one way uh, of interpreting the Torah, but I can't follow Jesus, the rabbi says, because he presents himself as the law. He presents himself as the Sabbath rest. And ultimately, he presents himself as the great I am. He presents himself as Yahweh. I am. Before Abraham was, I am, we see in John's gospel. And so Jesus really is the point of departure. When we see in John 6, you know, he, where Jesus said, um, if you want to follow me, right, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of the disciples walked away. But this is the same idea that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, think about this. Moses gave you bread from heaven, but the bread that I give you is my own flesh for the life of the world. And if you eat this flesh, then I will raise you up on the last day. That's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount coming out in John's gospel. It's Jesus, receiving Jesus into yourself so that you can become Jesus. That's it. And, and the beautiful thing here is that Pope Benedict points to two people in particular who have embodied the life of the Beatitudes. And the first was St. Paul. In a way, he says that Paul lives them all out most fully. This is on page 72, where he says that, you know, Paul uh, says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. And that's in 2 Corinthians, right? So this is the paradox of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, let go of the world. Why? Because the world doesn't matter? No, because it doesn't matter as much as the kingdom. And if you let it all go, you'll have it. You will inherit the land. Does that mean that you're going to be a king ruling over like other earthly kings? No, but when you go to mass, you will enter into the court of the great king. And that is the very center from which the world is ruled. And we see that liturgical connection that Benedict makes, right? He's constantly making, right? The, the meek will inherit the land. How is that fulfilled? Well, it's no longer a piece of land, a little strip of land in Palestine, which we know is still being fought over, of course. It's the land of living in communion with Jesus. Does it mean it's not a place? Well, when you go to Mass, it is a place. But it's not simply a place like Israel thought. And did Jesus get rid of the chosen people? That's what Rab Rabbi Neusner feared, right? You're getting rid of the eternal Israel. Well, no, I'm not. I'm fulfilling it for all nations. And the disciple, Benedict says is able to enter into the, the Torah of the Messiah in a way that is truly accessible for everyone. It doesn't mean being physically circumcised. It doesn't mean belonging to a particular ethnic group. It doesn't mean living in a particular place. 
but we are more fully the Israel of God. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, right? What we are called into the sonship that Israel was meant to possess. Israel is meant to be the people of the Messiah. We enter into this people of the Messiah when we become a Christian, an anointed one. And we're anointed and share in the Messiahship of Jesus because everything that Jesus has, he pours out for us. Who is Jesus? The son of the father. But that's what we become when we become his disciple. And I want to, I want to end here and, and then open it up for the discussion uh, with one more example of living the Beatitudes. And this is on page 78. And, and this actually brings us even farther into Pope Benedict's hermeneutic, right? That's a method of interpreting scripture, right? This brings us more deeply into his hermeneutic of faith or his ecclesial hermeneutic. So this is the second paragraph on page 78. But it may be a good idea, before we continue our meditation on the text, to turn for a moment to the figure whom the history of faith offers us as the most intense live illustration of this beatitude, which beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Francis of Assisi. The saints are the true interpreters of Holy Scripture. Whoa, okay. That's a big line, all right? And, and not a biblical scholar, but it's the saints because the revelation of Scripture is alive. It's not simply in the past. God actually knew everyone who would read the words of Scripture. He knew that you would be reading them when he revealed them. They're alive. They're meant to live in you. They're living in the church, the people of God. The meaning of a given passage of the Bible becomes most intelligible in those human beings who have been totally transfixed by it and have lived it out. Right? You want to know what a passage means? Look at how it's been lived in the life of the saints. Right? That's how you know what that passage really means. Interpretation of scripture can never be a purely academic affair. It doesn't mean that academics don't have their place. And it cannot be relegated to the purely historical. And that doesn't mean that history doesn't have a place. Scripture is full of potential for the future. A potential that can only be opened when someone lives through and suffers through the sacred text. Francis of Assisi was gripped in an utterly radical way by the promise of the first beatitude to the point that he even gave away his garments and let himself be clothed anew by the bishop, the representative of God's fatherly goodness, through which the lilies of the field were clad in robes finer than Solomon's. For Francis, this extreme humility was above all freedom for service, freedom for mission, ultimate trust in God, who cares not only for the flowers of the field, but specifically for his human children, etc. right? But the meaning of the Beatitudes continues to unfold. The Sermon on the Mount lives within the church, right? Because the kingdom of God is at hand now. We continue to receive the message in the person of Jesus acting in us now as we become his disciples, as we share in his kingship and his priesthood. And we are given an outpouring of his divine spirit to be within us so that we can say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
Okay, so with that introduction, this overview of our chapters, kind of getting us into the life and ministry of Jesus, I, I want to turn to that key question that I put out at the beginning of the study guide, right? So I put it out here as an overarching question as we're trying to unpack this, because, you know, really this is answering the challenge of Nietzsche, right? He, he looks at Nietzsche saying, oh, I see what Jesus is doing, right? He, he is turning the world upside down. And he's saying that being strong is actually being weak. And, and that, that being full is actually being hungry. And that's all a bunch of nonsense, right? That's making us into a bunch of sheep. That's undoing our humanity. And so we need to be strong. We need to fulfill our own desires. That is the gospel of Nietzsche. But we know it's not, it's a false gospel, right? It's bad news. And so he challenges the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And Pope Benedict, in kind of a cheeky moment, he says, oh, well, how's that working out for the world? How's the gospel of Nietzsche turning out? Do we have these great political systems and economic system making us all happy? Or are we more exploited now that we've kind of thrown off the gospel of Jesus Christ? So he kind of lays down the gauntlet back on Nietzsche in his teaching, right? Um, and so, you know, and I'd want to point to this because most people haven't read Nietzsche. And this is how the average person kind of interprets this. Oh, Jesus wants me to give up my happiness by being his follower. You know, the Beatitudes, you know, you can translate this happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, right? The word blessed, you know, has that connotation. Blessed or happy are you. You're happy if you're persecuted. And we're kind of, we're kind of like Nietzsche to be like, ah, I don't think so, Jesus, you know? I don't think I'm really going to be happy if people are trying to kill me, you know? Uh, and so, I, you know, I just want to poke at that a little bit. You know, so how does the essence of the moral vision of the Sermon on the Mount, rooted in communion with Jesus, differ from how the world views Christian morality as a, as a series of prohibitions. It's like, you know, Moses gave us commandments and they were hard enough. And then Jesus gave these beatitudes to us and they're even worse. I mean, the 10 commandments, I think I can handle that. I mean, but being happy when people are trying to kill me, I mean, this is getting out of control. <laughs> so how do we make sense of this, right? How do we make sense of the, of the morality of Jesus and once in, Pope Benedict is saying, well, the morality has to be understood through communion, right? So, so let's unpack this, right? How, how do you uh, under, understand kind of the teaching of Jesus and how it relates to our modern kind of expectations of morality and happiness? From there, we can reach, branch out to other questions and other comments. You know, so last week we had primarily questions, but you know, we're reading this text together. So if there's something that really stood out to you that you think is, is really important for understanding the text, feel free to draw that out for us to discuss as a group. But anyway, we're starting with this question first. So if anybody wants to jump in here, feel free. Nancy, go ahead. Unmute yourself there. I don't, I'm just guessing here, but part of it might be that we're emptying ourselves out and we're getting rid of these agendas that we have and letting God's agenda uh, come to life within us. Yeah, so you're saying that generally we view morality from the viewpoint of our own desires and expectations. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is that Jesus is asking us to let go of all those things, right? And to be drawn into his program, if you will, right? And 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 the the proper view of, of, of reality that he's revealing to us. 
Much and better said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was kind of like the um, the kids that are playing on the mountain and there's a, a fence around them. The ones that have the fence are going to play in the whole playground, but the, the ones who don't have a fence are going to stay clumped all towards the middle because they're afraid of, of branching out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Jesus, I, both the commands and the Beatitudes in that way are are helping us to kind of understand this is the place where you can truly become yourself. I was just um, struck by um, on the bottom of page 67, um, where he says, the goodness of the Lord is no sugar plum. The scandal of the cross is harder for many to bear than the thunder of Sinai, Sinai had been for the Israelites. And it said... Um, the Israelites were right when they said they would die if God should speak with them without dying, without the demise of what is simply our own. There is no communion with God and no redemption. So I thought that was kind of a, a really insightful passage. Yeah, and that's a great answer to it, right? You know, to, to really come into communion with God, you have to die to yourself. And the attitudes point us to that. If you want to come after me, you know, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. I was taken by the, Micah says, you know, this is what God requires of you. Do justice. Love, love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. The question is not, you know, why do I have to keep the Ten Commandments? The question is, why can't I keep the Ten Commandments? And the Beatitudes then says, do this. The Ten Commandments says, don't do that, and I can't not do that. But the Beatitude says, do this. So, I mean, it's it's an action. Love is a choice. Happiness is an action. I'm having a, I'm having a, there's no way that I can do that without God doing that through me. So yeah, when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, it is no longer I. Because if it was the I, 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 I would never be able to do it. I, I tried a whole lifetime of I. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, it didn't work. Yeah. You know, if doing Jesus is the way that happiness comes, then doing Jesus is the only way that happiness comes. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you pointed us to even the right answer, love, right? Because love pushes me out of myself to the other, but it's not even just me loving my, you know, on my own, as you're saying, right? Because it is loving through Jesus. You know, I'm dying to myself so that I can fulfill the commands through Jesus, right? I, I, I like how you said it, that, you know, the commandments were just don't, don't do these things. Um, the Beatitudes are more positive following Christ, but Christ is the one who enables us to fulfill the commands through love, right? Through a deeper perspective. Yeah. I wanted to mention um, back to the question about expectations. I think that in um, those times, I guess the Jews had a really high expectation of what the Messiah would look like. And referring to this society, I feel that in this society, we have not even a high expectation 
I think we don't even have an expectation of what Christ is supposed to bring into life. And with the Beatitudes, I feel that that's why it's so easy for it to become materialistic for people because we don't even have like a grasp or even, um, I guess, the ability to think in terms of a higher expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that because I think you're right. You know, we don't even really expect anything from Jesus uh, at all. Um, and so it can be hard to, like you're saying, receive this message. Say that, you know, we, we're, we're broken, we're all broken. And, and this is giving us the way to become unbroken and be with Jesus. And I, and I, and, and I was, I agree with what has been said here as far as some of the, you know, it's a positive. It's, it's giving us a, a way to do it mm-hmm. as opposed to don't do this, don't do that. Right. But, yeah. In Jesus. Yeah. yeah, through Jesus and Jesus. Through him, with him, in him, right? You know, make another liturgical connection. Um, let's maybe pivot here now. Can I can I add something to this conversation? Though? Please. I have a, yeah, please. You, you made me think of a cool quote. I, I As you guys were talking, I pulled it up. We, uh, we, we read this quotation from Archbishop Elias Shakur when we were in the Holy Land on the Mount of Beatitudes. And, uh, and he's a Palestinian Christian. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Galilee. And he wrote, he writes this reflection in a book that he wrote called We Belong to the Land. Um, he says, blessed is the translation of the word makarioi used in the Greek New Testament. However, when I look further back to Jesus's Aramaic, I find that the original word was ashre from the verb yashar. Ashre does not have a passive quality to it at all. Instead, it means something along the lines of set yourself on the right way for the right goal, to turn around, repent, to become straight or righteous. So he reads the Beatitudes something like this. He says uh, he would translate it as get up, go ahead, do something, move, you peacemakers, for you shall be called children of God. I, I love that. I mean, it, it expresses this, this active sense of actually living like Christ rather than just uh, yeah, it, it, having this passive sense of just well, those, you know, this is a category of people. It's kind of like what you said about uh, how how do you tell somebody who's mourning, oh, you are happy, right? Aren't you? <laughs> no, no, no. But there's something about how you do it. And, and Pope Benedict draws that out with each of them. Like the mourning example specifically is like there, it, it's how you do it uh, as Christ is uh, is modeling for you, right? Uh, let's go ahead and uh, did you want to pivot into more of a more of a question and answer sort of setting or did you have a different a, a next topic to to move to? Well, you know, I was going to circle back to a question I already introduced, and that is and, and I think, Peter, what you said actually transitions into this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a political program, but it would be wrong to try to limit it. Well, it's just spiritual, you know, in the sense of, of, of modern people you know, that we can have a kind of secularism to say, well, your faith is over here and the rest of your life is over there. You don't really see that coming out in Jesus at all. Uh, and so I think the way that Jesus wants us to transform the world is by first coming into the kingdom. And then he says, and then everything else will be added on to you, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says that. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added on to you. But it, it comes following um, the life of the disciples. So I don't know if anybody just had any thoughts on that, how 
the Sermon on the Mount is not political, economic, or social per se, but it has a lot of ramifications and impacts in those areas. And I think part of part of why I think that's important, and if nobody wants to talk about it, that's fine. <laughs> we can move on to the next topic. But part of I think why that's important is because otherwise the Sermon on the Mount could get explained away. You could overly spiritualize it to say, well, you know, that just means, you know, be, be poor in spirit. So it's kind of just like, be humble, have these good dispositions inside of you, but we'll let the world just go on being the world, you know? And the Sermon on the Mount is more powerful than that. Uh, it really is a force for transformation, I think, for, for human life as a whole, not simply, oh, these spiritual things that, that Christians should just keep over in the corner. Oh, yeah. I think that that is important as well. I think that um, not taking it just like the spiritual as well, because I feel that there's a lot of I think the book had mentioned how um, a lot of people kind of go against or I guess rebuke the Beatitudes. Like if, you know, where are those things being seen in the world right now? Like, why is there still hunger? Why is there still um, people being um, oppressed? So I like how the book transitions into how we need to first look within ourselves and um, find the ways that we can contribute to our own community and to the people that we interact with in order to, I guess, make that, I guess, manifest into our own reality and not just spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. That's well put. And, um, you know, it's the thesis of one of my books, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, essentially that the Eucharist saves civilization, not because God is concerned about civilization per se. The Eucharist saves civilization by saving us. And that when we are transformed, when we think about life rightly, when we are able to enter into Christ's righteousness and peace, um, and we are able to I think really enact the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in our lives, that changes the lives of others. And if Christians would live out the Sermon on the Mount, that would be transformative even for society. We know that it would, right? There are examples of this in history. Even St. Francis of Assisi, the example brought up, I mean, being a great force for change. But Peter, yeah, we can certainly open it up more broadly uh, here now as well. Yeah, and I'm just on that last point. Ines is uh, writing into the chat a really insightful point she makes. She says she thinks part of the problem is that we try to limit the sermon to just one aspect, right? In answer to your your question, why do why do we spiritualize or or maybe lose a lot of the force? Uh, I, I totally think that we do that. But Pope Benedict does a great job of actually connecting all of the different aspects together, beatitude to beatitude, like stringing them along and then connecting them to the woes in Luke's gospel. It's it's a whole, it's incredible. Yeah. I have a more of a Christological question. Sure. On the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the way it is structured in, in the gospels, it seems that Jesus gave or spent a whole day on, the, on this mountain or this mount to give a series of talks or teachings. And it's all there on what one day. Uh, I, I'll like your comment on, on the idea that it's, just, it's put together by the gospel writers. Uh, various aspects of these beatitudes are given throughout his life, but they are kind of brought together for the purpose of the gospel so that we can, as a reader, could get a good summary, a good overview of all his teachings, the essential ones. 
uh, and versus you know the historical reality that they were actually split or we call all over throughout his his three years of ministry. Um, yes. Yeah. on it. I, I mean, I, I think that we could probably say both and in a certain sense, right? I mean, there's a really good example of what you're saying in the fact that Pope Benedict says that Matthew has Jesus going up the mountain um, to give the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke actually has Jesus going down the mountain, and he speaks from the plain. And the gospel writers put in these details for theological reasons. Uh, having him go up the mountain— is having him to be the new Moses, giving the new law. But Luke's gospel emphasizes the poor throughout. Um, And you really do see, I mean, even when he says, blessed are the poor, not poor in spirit, but Luke says, blessed are the poor. Um, And so we see that the two are are able to capture different sermons. I mean, Jesus taught consistently over three years. He gave many more sermons and teachings than could be related in the gospel. At the end of John's gospel, he says there's more than could ever be put into a book that we could say about Jesus, right? So I think it's fair to say that Matthew does capture an historical moment, right? Because he he phrases it as such. I mean, Jesus went up the mountain. He told people to sit down, right? I mean, there's very clear things happening here that have an historical connotation, But when Matthew singles out, and there's certain great speeches, actually, that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. Matthew even frames his gospel with these great speeches of Jesus, his teachings. And this is the central teaching. Um, That we should, I think, view that as a kind of summation of the essence of Jesus' teaching that would have been unpacked in different ways in other sermons, such as the one recorded by Luke in his gospel. It's an incredible thing when you're when you actually see the mount because of course the the place has been uh, preserved in local memory the Mount of Beatitudes the traditional mm-hmm. Mount of Beatitudes and there's a beautiful church on it uh, but when you look at the uh, at the topography um, it it kind of helps you reconcile what may seem like a contradiction in the in between the Gospels because you know one it seems like it's down on the plain uh, the other going up the mountain. How is that even possible? But it's a very gentle slope up to a little bit of a of a crag, um, and it makes sort of a natural amphitheater. And so, depending on how you want to kind of frame the story, Jesus is either uh, on the mountain or or coming down from the mountain. Yeah, Benedict makes a theological point and wants to say that he both goes up, he ascends, but then he also descends. Right. I I have too many things in my head. I don't know how to put the question together, but I saw something when I was reading and the connection between obedience and peace and how you you to be to be really truly peaceful, you have to obey. I don't know what's your thought about it, but I, I felt like obedience and you die to yourself, you let him in, but then that's what's gonna give you through peace, especially with all the things that are happening around us, if you could develop on that a little bit, if I'm if I'm yeah. right with that connection. Right. And, and I think that the deepening here of obedience is that obedience is not simply following a set of laws, right? And when you look at even the law of Moses, it contained, what was the number given, right? Over 600 commands, right? When you look at all of them, not just the 10 commandments, but the whole thing. 
And so it's not obedience in terms of outward conformity. The obedience that Jesus draws us into, right? It's it's his obedience to the Father. So what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done, right? It's an obedience that leads to communion, to a union of wills in love, right? So that's the obedience that Jesus brings in the Sermon on the Mount. And does that mean that, I mean, we're not saying that we throw off obedience to the Ten Commandments because Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And how does he fulfill it? Through his obedience, right? He embodies the the perfection of the law in himself, in his relationship to the Father. And, And Pope Benedict draws out that we are righteous because we enter into the righteousness. And the word justice and righteousness are interchangeable, by the way. There's no difference in the Greek, how it's translated. We enter into Jesus's righteousness through faith, right? So we actually share. It's not our fulfillment of the law. We enter into Jesus's fulfillment of the law. And it's transformative of us, right? It, it's not simply forensic, like Martin Luther would have it, right? But it's it actually, by drawing us into Jesus's obedience, changes and perfects us. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, I have this vision, the water coming from the the river of life flowing from under the throne of God, it goes into the ocean, the abyss of darkness, out of which we are drawn. Catherine of Siena talks about the valley of humility, and the psalmist talks about the valley of the shadow of death. It's the same valley. Which way are we going? Which direction are we are we moving? Are we moving in the direction of the Beatitudes up the mountain, the valley of humility? As you go up that mountain, the stream gets smaller because he didn't come for the righteous. As you go up the valley, you become smaller, more humble, so that you can pass through that that eye of the needle, so so to speak, um, and drawing us out of that, out of that darkness, up to the mountaintop. It just, I, I don't know. I, I I got this vision in my head that that puts the, yeah. those two the, together, but going it's, in different directions. Yeah, it's a beautiful point, and it and it led me back to the text. And I think that's always helpful in our discussion, right? In the book study, let's stay rooted in the text. And I think it draws out a great point that Benedict is making here on page ninety-five, the bottom paragraph. Well, actually, let me let me move up to the kind of almost halfway down the first paragraph. Purification of heart occurs as a consequence of following Christ, of becoming one with Him. And, and then this is where he quotes Galatians 2, which we mentioned, and I think you even quoted uh, as well uh, last time, James. And at this point, something new comes to light. The ascent to God occurs precisely in the descent of humble service, in the descent of love for love of God's essence, and is thus the power that truly purifies man and enables him to perceive God and to see him. And then at the bottom... These words mark a decisive turning point in the history of mysticism. And you were bringing us into Catherine of Siena. 
They indicate what is new in Christian mysticism, which comes from what is new in the revelation of Jesus Christ. God descends to the point of death on the cross, right? Into that darkness you were pointing us to. And precisely by doing so, he reveals himself in his true divinity. We ascend to God by accompanying him on this descending path. Isn't that beautiful? We ascend to God by accompanying him on the descending path. And, and skipping a little bit, love is the fire that purifies and unifies intellect, will, and emotion, thereby making man one with himself in as much as he makes him one in God's eyes. Anyway, yeah, great point there. And I think it, 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 put, put it, us, it pointed us right back to Pope Benedict. We do have a lot of questions that have come in. So you want to you want to uh, start taking some of those? Yeah, yeah. Transition over in that direction. Right. Awesome. The first one I'm going to take this one from from uh, from Bradley, um, and it is an interesting one. He asks if you could clarify the difference between the casuistic law and the apodictic law. Yeah, absolutely. So casuistry is. Morality that focuses on particular actions. And so it's a term that was used even in Catholic theology to create manuals for confessors. If somebody comes in confession and they say this exact thing, this is how you should respond. And so the casuistic law of, of the Old Testament was essentially governing the daily life of Israel. And Benedict says that that developed even over the course of the Old Covenant. So Moses permitting divorce. Well, that was not given by God at Mount Sinai. Moses gave that as a kind of casuistic law um, when he was on the plains of Moab uh, before Israel uh, went into the Promised Land, as we see in the book of Deuteronomy. So casuistry dealt with very particular circumstances, juridic um principles, um, but actually juridic applications of principles in concrete circumstances. The apodictic was the general principles that kind of governed the law on a more overarching basis. And that's how we view the Ten Commandments, right? So we do not view the casuistic law of the Old Testament as binding upon Christians, but we do view the apodictic law as binding um, when it's talking about very general moral principles, like Benedict says, you know, you once were sojourners in Egypt, and so do not treat the sojourner unjustly in your land. All right, that's a general moral principle. But when it's like a cow breaks into a field and, and, and you know, tramples the crops and gores somebody, you know, that was a casuistic principle, you know. Um, but, you know, keep holy the Sabbath day was it was a, a general, you know, apodictic law. So that's the difference. And what the way this came out in the text, and this was even still engaging Rabbi Neusner to a, a bit, was that it was common for rabbis to give their own interpretation of how to view the very particular casuistic laws and how they should be interpreted in new ages. And so Jesus was entering into that. And so it was very common to take the more general principles and use those to reinterpret or even critique particular casuistic applications of a, of a certain age. This next one's from Kate. She asks uh, if you could help uh, to uh, 
kind of frame out maybe the the positive side or the the where these errors went wrong you mentioned liberation theology um she asks if you could uh just explain what can be affirmed in uh those sorts of errors what are they latching on to so that then you know we can understand uh where they went wrong well insofar as we see injustices being done in the world as a follower of Christ we should want to respond, right? And so we we don't simply turn a blind eye and say, okay, I know that political and economic systems are leading to the exploitation of people, but we don't care. So that's the positive element, but it's a general one. Um, and, and Pope Benedict and Pope, Benedict and Pope John Paul II, right, when they were working together, they, they actually wrote about the positive aspects of liberation, that Jesus does liberate us, and that liberating power impacts our entire lives. The problem with liberation theology, well, there are many problems, but um, one is that it draws upon Marxism, which is a very problematic principle, not only because it's anti-Christian, but also because it's anti-human and contradicts the natural law. The church has condemned it many times. Um, But beyond that, um, they were more concerned even about the reduction of the gospel to a social program. And Benedict, if you read his encyclical Deus Caritas Est, draws this out very well, um, that the church can never see its mission as consisting primarily in social justice. Now, the church has always been committed to charity for the poor. The church has never seen seen itself as a substitute government. Not even the Middle Ages, right? It didn't, right? But the church has always seen itself as addressing injustice in the world through Christian charity. And so liberation theology makes the fundamental mistake of taking the gospel and turning it into a program of social justice in the world. James writes in asking, if we live the Beatitudes, it is only natural to desire that others live the same way. Uh, For example, loving our neighbor as Jesus loves us. By ex- by extension, would not that constitute a political agenda in that we expect our government to adopt policies that would promote the common good and the good of the community? The church has always said, and Benedict actually points this out. He says that the Sermon on the Mount liberates government from theocracy and can allow government simply to be itself on the natural plane. And that has always been the church's position, actually, always. And it's consistent even in the Middle Ages, right? Um, this is the bottom of 118. The concrete political and social order is released from the directly sacred realm, as, as happened in the Old Testament, from theocratic legislation, like that casuistic law, and is transferred to the freedom of man whom Jesus has established in God's will and thereby and taught thereby to see the right and the good. So People say, and this is false, that standing up against abortion or standing for the dignity of marriage is imposing faith on others. That is completely and 100% not true, right? Uh, the, The proper form of government is based upon the natural law. And the natural law dictates that we should respect the dignity of every human being. And marriage arises out of the natural law. Uh, and this is and and part of the way that we know that it's the natural law is because we see it being articulated consistently 
throughout history and throughout the world. And that doesn't mean that people never act contrary to it. Um, but this is where the Romans could say that the, the Carthaginians were evil for burning their own children. You know, how did the Romans say that? Not because it's in the Bible, but because they say that's wrong, uh, you know, based on natural principles of justice. So that's always been the Christian program. But if you are a Christian and you understand that politics operates on a natural level, nothing that a Christian does can simply be natural, right? Because it is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So if I were president of the United States, I could not operate on a theocratic level, but everything that I do that I think, you know, would be guided by God's grace. So you fulfill your duties, right? You work at Walmart. You're not like the kingdom of God is at hand. You're like, hi, welcome to Walmart. But as I say, welcome to Walmart, I am guided by the, the grace of Jesus Christ. And I hope I'm a good witness that I'm friendly, that I'm helping somebody if I see them in need, and that this is guided by the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm not like trying to impose a theocratic program on Walmart or the United States government or anything, but but it all, everything I do is different because I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't recognize my faith being left behind anywhere, but the way that it's framed in the United States is fundamentally incorrect, right? By people in the United States today, maybe not even necessarily by the founders that we can debate that, but at least how it's understood today that my faith stays at the door. And once I like walk into, you know, the Capitol building that, well, faith is now irrelevant, but that's just false, right? It's a false dichotomy to say that you have a theocracy or your faith has nothing to do with politics, right? False dichotomy. And they can they can still sign up, right, for taking the uh, political series uh, through ICC and can watch the recorded sessions to learn the proper approach to politics from the Catholic perspective. Uh, yeah, I had to assume that that James's question is coming from taking that class as well. Yeah, I, I, Doctor, to be honest, if the Walmart greeters started proclaiming the kingdom of God, I, uh, I, I that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty incredible. <laughs> you know, maybe I need to apply just to say that yeah, somebody's yeah. done that. I don't know. Change yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, Sister Margaret writes asking if all of the Beatitudes point to a style of life that necessarily includes them all. It seems to me a saint can live a dominant Beatitude, but to live one, uh, it seems you have to live all the others. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, we say that the virtues kind of all hang one upon another, right? You can't really have one virtue unless you're a virtuous person. I think the, the Beatitudes work in a similar way. How do you live the Beatitudes? There's a more fundamental disposition that Benedict is trying to draw out, and this conformity to Christ. And so someone could embrace poverty. Does that mean that they're embracing the Beatitude? No. I mean, only if they're embracing it in Christ, right, to, to live as Christ in the world. And if we truly are conformed to Christ, then, you know, the Beatitudes will cohere together and it is true that, I mean, some may come more easily than others, and some may be more dominant, like we see in, in Francis wedding lady poverty. I mean, yeah, that's pretty intense. Like, you know, he embraced that poverty very directly, but but he uh, imitated Christ, and you can see uh, in, in a full way, and you can see all the Beatitudes in him. Martine has a, an interesting couple of questions. I'll, I'll put them together. She asks, um, when are we called to be passive? Uh, if we're called to put God first, does that mean being passive to, to not stir right or left until you feel God is asking you uh, to do this or that? 
Discernment's always very difficult. And Benedict even said that the Beatitudes will be lived differently for every person. He, he did say that in our reading, for every single person. But what's the unity between people that it's Christ? And rather than passivity, we might say cooperation. Because Benedict says at once, right, there's a conformity to Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But you can't conform to Christ unless you choose to, to, you know, to follow him in your free will. Jesus does not undo your free will. He makes you more free. He enables you to choose the good and freedom through his grace. That's another false dichotomy. Right? We think that if Jesus is moving us through his grace and the Holy Spirit, that, well, he's doing it, I'm not doing it. No, right? The, the Council of Trent says that faith, and this is an example of the Christian life as a whole, is completely the work of God and completely the work of man at the same time, right? It's a paradox. So the, the Beatitudes are all a paradox. Christian life is a paradox. It's all coming from Christ. It's completely Christ. It's, it, you know, we can't do it. Oh, but but he is enabling us to do it, right? You know, through his grace, he's he's drawing us out of ourselves. He's enabling us to take up our cross, to follow him. And he enables us to be more free and to choose. So passivity shouldn't be understood and say like, well, I'm not, I, I'm giving up. I'm not doing anything. There is a surrender, right? There is an obedience. There is humility, but it is it is one that draws us into this very active following of Christ. And even, you know, being rooted in prayer is not being passive, right? And, and in a way, contemplation is the most active that we can be because it's our, the deepest engagement we have of God. And when we encounter God, he always makes us active in some way or another, right? To live the Christian life uh, and to be a disciple in the world. That's great. That's great. We uh, we're running out of time, so we'll let, let's get one more in here. Kind of a general question uh, from John. If you could just maybe explain again, uh, the because it's an important point. Um, could you explain again what Pope Benedict is referring to when he talks about the eye of Jesus Himself? It, it's come up a number of times. What mm -hmm. what is he getting at here? So what he's getting at is that Jesus, in bringing the kingdom, brought Himself. Right. And and Jesus teaching about God brought himself. And so it's the I. It's not that, you know, Moses taught about God. Elijah taught about God. He did, he did miracles. Jesus is not teaching us about God. He's making God present to us himself in his eye. Right. What is his eye? It's it's he is the son. Right. That's his eye. I am the son of the father. Um, and so that is what is all important. And so being a Christian means that that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one who saves us, that he is the one who leads us to the truth. He is the one who leads us to the Father. It's not information that he teaches us over here. It's not ways that we imitate him over there. It's all about entering into him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the I. So what did Jesus bring? It's himself. He is. The manifestation of the Father. He is salvation. He is everything. Super. That is a great place to wrap up, and uh, and then we're shifting gears to the infancy narratives. So, uh, Doctor, could you close us in prayer tonight? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Jesus, help us to know the Father. Help us to follow you, to live in and through you, 
Help us to be your disciple, to live your beatitudes, to spread your kingdom in the world. Please bless us as we continue to, to learn about you in this book study and guide us as we begin Advent that we may prepare for your coming anew this Christmas. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And we give all glory to God as we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.